Hi, welcome to Such Good Feeling, where I talk to creatives and performers about those magical moments in their lives where small things changed everything. My name is Steve Anderson. I've been lucky enough to work around some of the most incredible people as a producer, musical director and writer over the years. Uh, today's guest is one of my dearest friends, but also an accomplished novelist, biographer, playwright, artist, songwriter, vocal arranger. Give him a broom. He'll sweep the floor. He can do absolutely everything. So uh, from sunny Dulwich, please welcome Terry Ronald. How are you doing? Hello, Steve. <laughs> Terry is uh, in his brand new, uh, newly refurbed, beautifully refurbed house, um, <laughs> which has an amazing ambience in every single room. So when Terry sends me vocals for things we're working on, I don't have to put reverb on them because they've already got no. a beautiful reverb on them. It's the old Dusty Springfield reverb. It's the Dusty Springfield high, <laughs> high ceiling reverb. Um, so we've obviously worked together on a lot of things, but uh, there's a lot of a lot of things that we haven't worked on together and uh you know this whole podcast is about beginnings and those lovely moments that have shaped everything and also a little bit of a delve into the process because you wear so many hats um yeah. it is intriguing to sort of see how how that is affected um and how much uh emotion uh, plays in that but you know from the beginning um I'm guessing growing up before you had a chance to even have music of your own, I mean, uh, can you give me an idea of what was the music that you grew up with? What was playing in your house? Well, when I was really little, well, not really little, when I was before my teens or just around, you know, I, you know, I, I hate to be really credible, but the first record I bought with my own money was Life on Mars by David yeah, Bowie. I still and don't believe quite, that. That's quite, you know, it really is true. And I remember reading the words in Disco 45 magazine. Um, but then after that, you know, I liked all of the glam stuff and, um, and then it was really, you know, soul and uh, disco stuff that, that came in the sort of uh, towards the end of the late 70s from... George McRae and Shirley and Company, um, going right through, right through, really. And as I said, it was a, such a brilliant time because you had that, and then you had the new wave of Blondie and Ian Jury, and it, it was it was like a golden era, really. Do you remember the first time you saw David Bowie on television? Uh, mm, Just because George, Boy George tells the story of the kind of the first time he really saw it. There was that magic that. Maybe it's a different time, but, you know, the first time he saw um, Bowie put his arm around Mick Ronson, it was just like, I yeah. get this now. That's really famous, that, that TV show, isn't it, Starman? Actually, mine was someone different. Mine was Roy Wood from Wizard. Right. That, that was my moment, and I was very young, and he came on, and first of all, he sounded like a girl. He had quite an androgynous voice because he always tried to emulate emulate um ronnie specter when he sang i think that whole specter sound thing and i saw roy wood this crazy looking guy with all this makeup and had this quite girly voice singing really really melodic songs and that was the moment where i was like oh i want to do that i, I want to do that and it was roy wood and was that the combination of the songs and the style and the look and does that, does that would you say that's the point where you thought as much as you would I'd quite like to be a pop star. Yes, he was. He was outrageous, and he was singing something uh, 
beautiful. His voice sounded amazing. The sound behind him, I remember what wizards were like. It was a huge sound. Um, and see my baby jive. Uh, and I still love that song now. The, you know, it's just, it's just an amazing record. And, um, yeah, I think that was my first, oh, wow, I want to do this moment. So what then did you, you obviously had this idea that that's what you wanted to do. How did you go about it? Did you start finding, did you think about writing songs? Did you start looking around for people that could help you do that? Oh, no, I didn't do anything like that. I just went out clubbing. I mean, literally, in the, I had no money, left school, didn't really know what I was going to do, did bar work. It just completely lived for dressing up and going out. It was the early 80s, so it was all those clubs, the Mub Club, Cha-Chas, all those places would just be out every night clubbing, dressed up to nine, spending literally every money, every bit of money we had on makeup and outfits and had no real thought about um, about wanting to... Well, I suppose we did want to be something, but I think I don't think we didn't... We knew what... It was that thing of, you know, just going out and being fabulous and hoping that we'd get discovered. And I sort of did. <laughs> in, and, and what was the, uh, the catalyst for that? Uh, I was in a club dancing, a club called Studio 21, and I got literally, me and my friend Lee, got plucked from the dance floor, rather like the girls from the Human League, as the story goes, and asked for, to dance on stage with his band. They were pretty bad, actually. They were called Red Lipstick. <laughs> it was some nightclub band. I know, horrible. And I did this, I, but I, I ended up being becoming the singer with this band. And within this band, um, there was a keyboard player who sort of broke off and I went off with him. And two of the rest of the band became part of then Jericho. Uh, two of that, those guys in the band, I was in, become then Jericho. And I went off with this guy called Malcolm and formed a band, which is where I met my first songwriting partner, really, Nigel Lois, through him. And were, what kind of music was this band, this <laughs> red, red lipstick? lipstick. What, were they, what were they doing? Kind of campy, electro-clubby stuff. Right. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it was... It was as bad as it sounds. <laughs> so you're there with, I mean, for everyone that doesn't know, Nigel Lewis is an incredibly acclaimed producer, writer, and possibly most famous for the Dina Carroll albums um, in the 90s, but and Eternal and many, many other things. He's a, a wonderful producer. Um, how does, how do you go from meeting him to kind of talking to him to being in a writing situation with him? Well, we formed another band because the other band was sort of not what we wanted. So we formed another band um, of which I was the singer and main writer with Nigel and that's when we started to write songs. And that, that, that band was called Gunshy um, uh, after a few other incarnations. And that was the band that uh, eventually uh, we, we got signed to MCA Records. And was that literally, you know the old days of putting together some demos, doing some gigs, someone come and saw you and gave you a record deal, was it? Yeah, demos on cassettes. Some They sent some secretary down um, 
who is amazing, and I still know her now, Melody, she came down to see our showcase because they couldn't be bothered to send anyone else. And she went back and told Dave Ambrose, who was the head of the company, oh, I think this band are quite good. I think we should sign them. So he went, oh, okay then. (laughs) And he did. And that was the singles initially or straight into an album? It was singles. We had one single, which was pretty bad. It was Peter Powell's record of the week. But surely you say that now. And nobody else's. No, but you say that now, but surely at the time you'd have all those amazing moments the first time you heard your voice on the radio and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, I did. I did have that. Um, it, that. That song didn't get played a massive amount on the radio, unfortunately, but it was Peter Powell's record of the week. But there, there was that. I think... I think all that excitement came later, really. I think it was all a bit of a whirl. We were still blasé. I, I was so young. I remember doing interviews and saying, you know, just be, saying the most embarrassing things and just being, just not knowing, having no training of, of how to behave with interviewers or in front of a camera and just, I still think young artists probably have the same pitfalls now, but just really green. Yeah. So Gunshy was was a sort of stepping stone, but obviously you continued on the partnership with Nigel once the yeah. band had, had gone. Would, did you decide between the two of you that it should you should carry on the writing together with a view to you going solo? Yeah, we, we carried on writing together and I recorded the demos um, as me. And it was a funny story. I, I, the band had split up and we were sort of adrift, but still signed to the label. And this uh, A&R scout found my tape on his desk. And it is one of those moments. I went running around the company saying, this guy's amazing. We've got to sign him. Listen to these songs. We've got to sign this guy. And everyone got all excited and then someone turned around and said, oh, no, he's already signed. <laughs> he's in this band. He's already signed. And literally within a month or two months, I've been chipped off to New York to record an album. And what How many? Do you, what, what kind of song? Were they the songs that ended up on the album as well? Was it, you know, yeah, Calm yeah, the Rage? Some, that it was Calm the Rage and, and some of those songs that, are, that ended up on the album. So do you, did you have pretty much between you and Nigel by that point, did you have the album written, give or take? No, I think we had five or six. And then I came back from New York and we wrote some more. I went back out again. Okay. Um, and, and not only do they, I mean, this is what's incredible about it. I mean, not only do they send you to New York, they send you to one of the most legendary producers uh, in America, probably the world, Harvey J. Goldberg, to yeah. to produce. Was, was that your choice, their choice? <laughs> Well, there was, I, I struggled to find a producer. I, originally, when we were in the band, we really used to like um, Michael Baker, who did all the Blow Monkey stuff, because mm. um, it just sounded huge. And I wanted something like that. And I, I, I didn't really know enough about production. And, and then I remember hearing Labour of Love and all those songs, the first Hue and Cry album, and saying, I want to sound like that. I want that big sound. And um, I think uh, someone contacted Harvey and Jimmy, who produced that album, and sent, sent my stuff over to them, and they really liked it. And they came over to London and said, we want to do it and we want to take you to New York. I was like, yes, please. <laughs> and thus began a love affair with that city that's lasted yes. your whole life. 
Yeah, it's my second Do you remember that first time? Do you remember that? Very well. That kind of movie moment where the steam really does come out from under the streets and all that. I think my, I think that uh, moment when I, they told me, they sent me to you on my own and just told me to get in a cab and go to the hotel. I mean, this was in the sort of late 80s. I didn't know anyone that had been to New York. I, I was quite nervous. I was very young, 24, 25, got off the plane, got in a cab. And I remember it was night time, so it was dark, coming round a corner and seeing the skyline. And I remember it vividly. And it was, my whole body shook. I remember being so overwhelmed and excited seeing that skyline. And it, and, and it, it was pro- possibly one of the most exciting moments of my life. I've, I've, I've still never forgotten it. And I think that that moment I fell in love with New York and it's never changed. Is it somewhere that you'd kind of looked at or sort of in pictures or on TV? Or was, it, was it one of those places that you always kind of felt you would end up there somehow? Well, I, think, I think I hoped, yeah. And, of course, you've seen that, that, that skyline and the, that city on every fil- so many film and TV, you mm. know, shows. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I took to it instantly. I, I love I loved it immediately. And um yeah, it definitely has become my second home. And you get the cream of the New York session musicians playing on your record. I mean, it doesn't get much better than the the people that are on it. I know. Again, it was a case of um me having like sort of on one of these songs that I had that became a single called Chains of Love. Nigel had programmed this sort of vibe solo on it, you know, and um, and I and I remember me saying to Harvey and Jimmy, "Well, I want it to kind of be like, you know, like Roy Ayers." So, so Jimmy's like, "Well, that's fine. We'll just get Roy Ayers." <laughs> I'm like, "Yeah, whatever." And and then in up there is Roy Ayers turning up at the studio. <laughs> I mean, that was pretty crazy. Um, and the same with, you know, the brass section was the Brecker Brothers and I had Bernard Purdy playing drums and Cornell Dupree playing guitar and, you know, just unbelievable legends that I had heard of, you know, through my love of soul music. And again, a thing that has defined your life, um, uh, just a ridiculous gospel background vocal section as well. Yeah, two of my friends, Val and Paul, who I took with me, and then some other amazing singers, Fonzie Thornton, um, Tawatha G, Cindy Mizell, you know, people that have been on a lot of the great classic records, yeah. Mm. So you finish the record, it gets mixed, it's there, it's your album, it's finally coming out. Um, was the just the initial part of it, you know, that original rush of all of a sudden you are a bit of a pop star, which is the thing that you were dreaming of when you were a kid. Yeah. How how was that? Because you were still really relatively young when all that was still going on. Yeah, I think by the time it came out, I was just about 26 or something, or I said I was. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Done like Terry to lie about his age. He's still Um, been 37 for the last 20 years. But, I mean, how was the pop star experience for you? Well, short. (laughs) But but when you were in it, you you were making videos, you were going around, you had 
tremendous success I, in various countries. You know, you. I did. I think it's because um, I, my that I struggled in the UK to get played, and and when I um, when they show the old top of the pops from TV and I look at the music that was around then I sort of it's easy to understand why I struggled because everything was very very kind of dance orientated but not even particularly it was kind of that post acidy kind of weird clatter it wasn't even before the really good house when the really good house music came in it was a weird period of time and I think that um Maracas just didn't get played. Um, I was just, you know, I was just unlucky. And um, luckily, they got played in other countries. So I was able to be a pop star in other countries. I also remember there was a bit of a disconnect with some people about how you looked compared to how you sounded. There was. Um, Echoes magazine, which was, uh, you know, one of the, I, I don't know if it's still around, it was like a sort of black music magazine. The, the A guy turned up to interview me from Echoes thinking that I was a black woman. And there he, and then when he met me, he said, are, are you Terry's manager? And I said, no, I'm Terry. <laughs> and he thought he was turning up to interview a black woman because he thought, so that was, that was interesting. And I mean, I still, I still got in that magazine, which was good. Yeah. But I guess you were always going to sound like that because of your influences, right? I mean, from the I first th- time you started singing, you you would have immediately gone to that. I yeah, I think I. The people I tried to sound like, I suppose, when I was singing, I was such a big Aretha Franklin fan. Now. I was never. No one's ever going to sound like Aretha Franklin, um, but. Because I try, I was, you know, this South London boy trying to sound like that. It sort of, I guess that's where it came from. And I think there were other singers, you know, weirdly, you know, London white boy singers that ended up, you know, having that sound. George, Michael and boy George both had that androgynous Mm. kind of sound. And with the same thing, because I I would imagine their influences would have been the same as, as mine. And on that first record, you know, I, I said at the beginning that you've got a very, very big love of melody, but um, I imagine as well you were getting honing a lot more lyrically as well and getting, it was kind of getting, not probably as something that as you've gone on, it's got even more so with lyrics, but um, there are certainly some songs on that record that, uh, I mean, One More Dollar in particular is a, is a brilliant story song, which sets up the fact that it's not surprising you became a playwright at the end of it because you were writing lyrical songs with stories. Yeah, I do I do like, um, I suppose, telling a story, but in, but in a very poetic way. I don't, I don't really like things that are too literal. I, I like things that evoke a story rather than, you know, tell it A, B, A, B. And I think with One More Dollar, for instance, I'd just broken up with... Uh, a guy that I would I had been with since I was 16 years old and I was you know so I'd been with him for like nine years or something and that was my song that I wrote when I broke up with him um so obviously it was it did mean an awful lot but what's lovely about it is it's a breakup song but it's not a kind of an obvious you hurt me I'm sad it's you know you've actually there's a you can you envision you've been able to put a story behind it yes so it's about it's about yeah. something other it's about that, but it's not about that, if you know what I mean. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's it's asking, I suppose it's asking the question of of what was it all, what, what was all that worth? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, it, and, and, and is it worth any more, really? So the first, that first album, you know, did, it was a, you know, a critical success. I mean, it's certainly the first time that I heard you sing. And yeah. it was the reason that, you know, even back then I got in touch and said, let's try and work together or at least do something. Um, yeah. I was also working with a guy called Clive Griffin, who was in a similar situation, British soul singer. So Yeah, um, he was my rival, but a lovely guy. <laughs> So, um, so that so obviously, do you go straight from that record, literally straight into the next one, to into Roma? Well, yeah, I had second album syndrome, um, which I I just lo- I had I had no real direction. I think that I think the problem is, and this has been the bane of my you know career. Really, I think that problem is that when isn't when you put so much into something and it isn't and isn't as successful as you imagine it will be or want it to be uh, despite me having hits in other countries and you know uh my confidence had gone and i think i ended up writing things that i thought i should rather than being true to myself which i think is a uh is a story you hear quite a lot, isn't it? Yes. From, from people. They get to that thing where the thing that someone loves about, the thing that someone loved about finding your cassette, going, oh, my God, who's this guy? He's amazing. All of a sudden turns into the person saying, maybe you should be a bit more like someone else. Well, I think there was there's an element of the, the label thinking that as well. Mm. Um, but the label was sort of saying those things to me without really being any help without sort of finding me people to work with. It was all very self-perpetuating. I I sort of did everything myself. Um, And I think that was the problem when you you just don't know where to go. You sort of, I remember reading an article once saying that um, every band or artist dreams of um, the record, of getting a record deal is that, you know, the best thing that's ever going to happen to them. But often it's, just the beginning of all their problems. And I think there was an element of that um, because I did get really lost uh, within that. And the, as time goes on, when you've not had success, you sort of, you feel that within the, the way you're treated within the, the company. And so it wasn't easy. Although I did manage to last a very long time there. Yeah. Oops. But but inevitably the second album didn't turn out to be quite what what it needed to be, I guess. No, it didn't. I didn't ever finish it. I think a new regime took over and I got dropped. You know, after I mean I've been there quite a long time, but uh, yeah, and that was the end of that. And and how how was that for you? Was it a sort of a relief or was it devastating? Or I I was at a dinner party and. My manager told me so we've been dropped, and I was like, "Okay, more wine." Um, I, yeah, I don't. I think it had been a long time coming. I didn't. I didn't really know where else to go. I remember everyone that was working with me was much more upset than I was, um, probably because I'm an optimist, and I just thought, "Well, it's fine. I'll do. I'll, something else will come along. I'll. I'll do something else." 
which so what so you you're there it's dropped you're like okay i need to do something else now so what how do you manifest that what's the thing that you jump into next well i didn't uh again it was uh i had um become friends with um damon oak uh while i was at the label because we were on the same label and she when i got dropped it's like that thing nobody wants to talk to you like nobody phoned me like people from the label people to work with it was like nobody phoned me it was like tumbleweed and the one person that phoned me up was danny and she was what 19 or something and she said oh it's really shit what's happened um but you know i'd love for you to come and work with me on my records and help me i really need someone to you know come in the studio with me and you know get the best vocals out of me and and that's what happened i i ended up starting doing some work with her which led on to sort of the next thing which was writing and producing for other artists another serendipitous moment was yes exactly were the danny sessions was that that was here right when she was living here yeah yeah. The first song I did with her was This Is It. Right. As a as a vocal producer, arranger, I guess, right? Yeah, I was there to produce the vocals. And I remember um, uh, she wanted to sort of, she said, I love the way you sing with that sort of soul-y kind of vibe. You know, what shall I do? What can I do to get her set? <laughs> so I suggested she have a cig- cigarette. <laughs> so we went out and had a cigarette and then... And then we just went for it and I just threw or I really didn't know what I was doing. All I could do was throw all my influences at her and say, try it like this, try it like that. And this vocal came out that was, was, you know, amazing. And uh, it went from there. What was the first song that you co-wrote that Danny sang? Oh, I think I wrote quite a few. I think the first ones we really wrote together would have been on the Neon Nights album. Right. So it probably would have been with Ian Masterson. Yeah. And it would have been something like uh, Mystified or one of those songs from Neon Nights. Right. When did you, did you meet Ian through Danny? Yes, I was sent to, uh, to work with Danny uh, and we were working with Ian. So we both met him on the same day. And Ian is uh, obviously a writer, producer. He's kind of, I've always said, he's sort of the closest to a carbon copy of me you can get, as in he kind of does all, a lot of the same things. But uh, you two have you know, produced a lot of other things as, as well as Danny. I mean, probably most notably the uh, incredible Sheena Easton, fabulous disco album of covers, which which if, no, if anyone hasn't heard, I don't even know if it's on streaming, but... Um, it's not. It is... Uh, it's an ex- extraordinary thing and you really got given the kind of keys to the kingdom with that because it was you picking your favourite disco records, putting Sheena on it and orchestras and choirs and everything, right? Yes, that was, our, uh, talking of moments, that was, uh, we were flown to LA, um, Ian and I, first class, not business class, first class, because they had some sort of deal with the thing. And I had our pick of the studios. And I remember, I remember Ian saying in this meeting, well, where did Madonna record Ray of Light? <laughs> but he told himself, well, that's where we want to record. It was, it was that ridiculous sort of early 2000 thing where, you know, you know, everything was going on and, and, um, 
we mixed it at Psalm and uh, I think you were upstairs while we were doing it, um, doing working on Kylie. Uh, it was it was a good time, but yeah, we we had full orchestras on all that, and we flew backwards and forwards to LA to work with Sheena. It was yeah, it was pretty golden. And talking of Kylie, obviously you were around. It was interesting. It was uh, a conversation quite recently on uh, on Twitter going on about um, a couple of songs on her first album that you were that I produced with. Dave Seaman, yeah. uh, you were vocal producing with us and, you know, people talking about songs like Love Is Waiting and Automatic Love, which has got your stamp yeah. all over it when it comes to, yeah. especially when it comes to the ad-libs. Yeah, and, well, that, it's the same thing, isn't it? I like, I, you know, I'm not a technical producer. I just I just know how to throw ideas at people and say, we could do it like this and why don't you try it like this? And, you know, and Kylie obviously has the skill and the the that, amazing rhythm and pitch she's got to be able to to be able to do whatever's thrown at her and she, she does that and and more you know um so it was it was brilliant did you meet kylie through danny again dan has come up trumps for me so many times because she when kylie left pwl she was nervous about working with all these producers these new producers she was going to be working with the first of whom was St Etienne, I believe. Mm. And so she told Danny she was nervous and Danny said, well, you should take this guy that I work with with you. He's called Terry and he's, he's really good in the studio. And that's what happened. So that's how I started working with Kylie. Wow. And, and that's suppose, how we ended up in the studio together. Yeah, because we'd, we Again. had, we, yes, well, no, but I mean, we had met briefly for a disastrous yeah. songwriting session when you were still signed as an artist. And then, um, yeah, and then then we did. And then there was a lot of that. And you were very much part of that, part of a BV's, appeared on stage at Tea in the Park in some very fetching <laughs> shorts. Yes. Which is available on YouTube if you want to watch it. Um, singing with uh, Cl- actually Clive Griffin, who we spoke about yeah. before. And. Tessa Niles, who is the legend and love of our both of our lives, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. So, yeah, there were some amazing things. And your writing was, you were still writing, you were writing for other artists. Um, And you, would you say, because obviously originally all of these sessions were very much like, oh, here's my friend Terry, he's good with vocals. At what point did you start to think, maybe this is it, this is part of my career, it's going to be a vocal arranger slash coach for people well I didn't want to do that because I'm not a technical uh, you know vocal coach like my friend Stacey Sammy or like you know um all the great Annabelle or any of the great vocal coaches there are that's not me that that's not what I do well I love getting a performance onto tape so I knew I wanted to do it in conjunction with having a part of making the whole record not just going in and putting, you know, helping someone put a vocal on someone else's song, so which is where my songwriting partnership with initially with Ian came into it and we started writing the songs and working with the artists. Um, so, and my part of it was very much the melody, the top line and getting the best vocals out of people. Yes, that's true. But at the same point, you know, you are, you, you are the person as well or you were the person that, that people wanted around when they were doing a TV show or a live, you know, yes. you you have a, you know, it's, it's 
particularly with female performers, um, even, you know, sort of later down the line with girl bands, you know, like um, Girls Aloud and the Saturdays, there's a, you understand that dynamic really, really well, I think. Yeah, I do. I, I think I do. And I think it is a case of operating on, on their level, as in, as I say, I'm not particularly technical with what I do. It's about feeling and, um, and I suppose I was just, you know, knowing how to get the best out of someone by sort of singing with them and, you know, finding ways for them to overcome problems uh, in, in my own way. Um, but I, I did seem to, yeah, get on well with, especially female singers. There's also, I think, understandably, a an interesting dynamic with any band of more or far, four or five people as well. That you know, there is a there is a technical side to your job, but there's also a political slash emotional support side to your job because when you're in one of those bands, especially a band like Girls Aloud, when they are at their peak, it's, I think it's very difficult for anyone to understand the kind of pressure that those those girls and people like those girls are under at that point and how yeah. hard it is to support them. It's always full on. And when you're sent to make sure, you know, you're told, it's the label and stuff have told you, make sure they warm up when they're doing a live performance. And, you know, as much as, you're trying to do that in a dressing room to make sure they sound their best and they warm up and no one's croaky and they're going to go out live. You know, the hair and makeup people rule the, rule the roost in those situations and those girls are not going anywhere until their hair and makeup has been teased to within an inch of its life. Mm. And I think sometimes, you know, the, the you, you've been in that situation yourself, mm. I'm sure, and sometimes, you know, the actual important thing the music kind of goes out the window a bit uh in favor of the styling well also yes it's the music but also just that the thing they are most nervous about which is singing live and getting yeah. it great is is left almost to the last minute and oh um, god yeah and it's, it's always it, a rush always a nightmare always a rush it doesn't matter how prepared you try to be it's always a rush yeah so you're obviously you're you've cut this kind of niche. You've already got. I mean, you know, you're very, I think, well known for being very good at lots of things. I think it's also commendable the fact that everyone you've spoken about in these bands are still friends to this day. Yeah, you know, these are. Yeah. You don't do a job and leave. You collect people and as your friends, as you're with them, which I think is says a lot about you as a person and um, yeah. and how much people and and not only just to get you back to do the same job, you know, you will socialise with these people and and actually have a lot of fun. I mean, there are those moments, those tense moments um, in TV studios, but there's also hilarious moments when, you know, you can actually kick back and just be around a bunch of pop stars and have the time of your life. Absolutely. Yeah, there really is. I remember one of the best um, times I remember is... Danny and I spent a lot of time in Paris recording with a production team called Nemo. And we always stayed at the Hotel Cost. We stayed in a lovely hotel. And, um, you know, we were in Paris. It was the two of us on our own in Paris. And I remember at one point, Kylie was playing there and we went to the 
uh, George Shank and sat on the rooftop with her and looked out over Paris. And then we would go to this amazing nightclub called Queen and dance on tables. I remember dancing on the table next to Danny and Kirsten Dunst was dancing on the, all those like amazing things that you get to do that the fun things you can't, you can't, um, you can't buy that really. Uh, and yeah, those, they, those were fun times. And as I say, you know, being in LA with Ian working on the Sheena album and, some of the things we've done as well. <laughs> yes, it's all <laughs> the like, high yes. seas. Oh yes, no, definitely. But that's but that's all part of it. That's the bit that you know because it is. It's really hard to say that it is hard work because obviously it feels like it's not a job. But there are elements of it that can be hard work, and I think, as I say, I'll ne- never underestimate the pressures of what being in a boy band or a girl band or whatever you want to say. Oh, when you're at the height, it's you know. I remember with even with you know bands like Take That and Westlife, they at the height they've got the next year and a half planned yeah. out of their life. They can look and know what they're doing in a year and a half's time, yeah, the, to the date to the time almost. So I know. Um, so it's a it's wonderful not, it's, life, but it, it is. And, and I think from coming from any creative thing, I think that the toughest part of the job, uh, particularly if you're creating something and putting it out there, is um is is maintaining a belief in yourself and what you're doing yeah. because you know i think that's the, especially when it's when you are you know you, certain things are not successful or don't go as well as you want to, to to sort of carry on and maintain that belief and be able to morph and change i think that's what's kept me going you know uh more than anything, really. So the next part of the story is obviously after continuing working with all these bands and everything, I suppose there was inevitability that you were going to end up doing something in musical theatre. Um, <laughs> and it, it seemed to be, the, from what I remember, it was, would, would I mean, I'm guessing Rent was the first thing that you actually did were involved with a creative team on a theatre show, is that right? Yes, yes, it was Rent, yeah. And as far as I remember, that was literally, you were called to come and audition someone and you ended up walking away with the gig of the vocal arranger of the whole show. You called me. I was yes. sitting in, I was sitting in the studio and, and you called me and said, will you come and do this and uh, come and audition? We, 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 we're not sure about this person. Will you come and audition him? with us and I came and I sort of hung around <laughs> whether I was wanted or not and ended up getting the vocal arranging gig which was you know ridiculous because I'd never done anything that you know huge before somehow we managed to to do it um but that was yeah that was another um odd serendipitous thing that happened and really was the start of our working relationship over the next what is now 14 years and I think it's am I right in saying that would have been the first probably one of the first things you did when you had come back after being ill for a while as well yes I was I was working on Danny's album the Neon Knights album when I, and I got cancer I had uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and I didn't I nearly didn't make it so when I came out of that and I did make it, I really did feel like 
it was clean slate time. I think that's th those those kind of experiences afford you that. Okay, now what what do I want to do? What what how do I see this moving forward? Uh, rather than oh, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. You know, it's it's a bit of a clean slate. And you still carried on doing the things you were doing before, but I think the thing about something like Rent, which was the, the first theatre show I'd worked on as well, was it was almost too much. Like it was, it was almost too much. It was. It would have been easier to have just said that's too hard. But you almost had a stoicism whereby you just said, "I'm going to give it a go and I'm going to do it," and actually stare the thing in the face and stare it down and achieve it, even at times when it was seemed unsurmountable. Um, yeah. or in two words, Christmas Bells, um, yes. which if anyone knows the score from that show, uh, they'll know uh, it's a bit of a full-on one. And also your job was not only to take the original um, vocal arrangements, but it was also to add your flair to it to kind of turn yeah. it into a new version. And then teach it to the and cast. And then teach it to a cast. without reading music. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it was, it was really hard. But I think my... Uh, it, it was a thing of saying if if I'd have, if I'd had a lot of notice about it, I probably would have been a lot more scared. But the fact that we were all thrown at the deep end with it, it was like sink or swim. And I think we all realised what I, certainly you and I did when we were walking backstage in that theatre every day that this could be our new, that we loved being there mm. and that this could be a new thing for us um, in in whatever way, shape or form. And yes, we still continue to do the other things, but it sort of became another, another string to one's bow. How would you describe your process of teaching people um, songs or harmonies? I mean, I've obviously been in a room and you've done it and it's quite, full on and quite loud and but within almost within 25 minutes everyone knows what they're doing yeah i just sing it at them i just sing it at <laughs> until them. they sing it and i get right. them to copy me yeah and i don't know where it comes from that harmony thing i mean i don't you know I, it's just something i did when i was a kid i sang along to abba and diana ross and the supremes and i always sang the sort of secondary part and the third part rather than the lead and that is how i learned to uh, work at harmonies and I'm not the best at it there are people that are, are much better than me at doing clever arrangements but I kind of uh, I have an instinct for it and the best way I can get it across to people is to sing it at them <laughs> until I get it right also I think with Rent <laughs> what was born was a was a way of working that, that that we both have now which is very much creating reference versions for people that yeah. you can just send send them an mp3 and it might just have a dodgy piano and you squawking over it but it's like yes. well this is it and um i think that came in very very handy with a, another show that you worked on with myself and william baker which was a burlesque show called the hurley burley show where not only were you having to teach the uh or create the harmonies but uh on many occasions you know it was a comedy show. So some of it was changing lyrics, some of it was changing up, uh, keeping the lyrics of an original song, but putting a new twist on it. Um, and, you know, one of the things that so many people have um, and treasure, I'm sure, are your original 
guide vocal demos on all of these songs that ended up being in the show. Yeah, how do you reimagine Hit Me Baby One More Time as a tango or bad as a sort of sleazy kind of brassy? Uh, yeah, it's... it's um, well, easily was, for you, quite easily and quite naturally. Yeah, but when you're doing it in your sort of, you're singing those sort of trying to, you know, emulate a sort of burlesque star in, in, and, and do her voice in your office and the window cleaners behind you cleaning the windows <laughs> and you'll sing there going, because I'm bad, I'm bad. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> there have been plenty of those moments. But at the same point, putting all of that work in and that effort in, when in that particular instance, Polly Ray, who was our superstar that, that, that headed up that show, um, she she knew exactly what to do with the song. She could then do her twist yeah. on your version, but to get from the original to, to the her version without you putting an idea yes. of well, how it, I mean, that is so important to be because you and I can hear, we're quite in a way that we can kind of hear the finished thing in our head, but that's very alien to someone who doesn't work that way. Yes. So being able to demonstrate it for, for these people, I think is incredibly important. I think my... The thing that I is, is the reason it's important is because you and and I'm the same. I know how I want somebody to sing something or how I feel it should be sung. Now that person might be a better singer than me. Um, they generally are, but I if you've put down an arrangement or there's a groove there, I, I sort of know exactly where I want the the notes to land, the, the inflections to be, and and that is why it's always good to do my version of it because then they can expand on it, but they at least have a version of how I think it should be. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's fair enough to say we are both very proud of the fact that, that the Hurley Burley show did not one but two West End runs in proper West well, End theatres. Well, three, really. It did Actually, three, because Leicester yeah, Square, yeah. Three, but there yeah, was a moment, yeah. there was a moment where this little show um, that we had a, a, a hand in, and it was an incredible creative team, including Ashley Wallen, who's Kylie's choreographer, but that the we kind of had a hand in putting together with, with Polly and William. There was a moment that I remember that we would sat at the Garrick um, watching it all happen, and that was a, you know, from the, couple of chances that had got in to do rent and figured out how to do a theatre show to have a show at the Garrick Theatre with that looked and sounded like it did was was a bit of a moment I remember. yeah it, it was pretty spectacular and you know all the all the stuff that comes with it the you know the opening nights and the you know seeing it you know the name of the show up outside the theatre is that was pretty amazing there was also going back to rent I mean there was one of the things I think I loved the most about Rent, and I know you did too, is that because it was the first show we had on, it was it was addictive. Like you just, it was on. And if you had nothing else to do, you know, do you want to watch yeah. Coronation Street? You know, and <laughs> nights after night, you and I would meet up and sit in the little Muppet box up there and just watch the same show, but just be, we didn't get bored of it. No, and I think it's because... Uh, I think we were kind of amazed that we'd actually done it, and and uh, and it was it was you kind of wanted to you knew it was going to end at some point, so you wanted to get as much out of it as possible. And as you said, from that first time that we were at the Duke of York's, we looked took a look around us and said, "We we live here now." Yeah, exactly. 
It wasn't, it wasn't surprising. So uh, presumably it was not a huge surprise to you that after burlesque, you ended up working with drag queens. Well, it was, a, it was the next step, wasn't it? It was the, it was the logical step. Um, yeah. Uh, do you know what's amazing to me is when Mark and I, my husband and I got married, we had um, a drag queen bridesmaid and this was 2007, early 2007. And I remember we really wanted to have a drag queen bridesmaid and we didn't know very many drag queens. Cut to literally a year later, <laughs> I was nose to nipple in drag queens. <laughs> yeah. So it must have been around this time that you'd already had so many strings to your bow. Um, and then at some point you thought, I wonder if I could write a book. That came out of being ill. When I was ill uh, with the cancer, I kind of came out of that thinking I need to do something different. And I remember that was before I'd worked with you on Rent and stuff. It was sort of before that I, I started with the writing. And that was, I remember I'd... I'd, I'd I lost a bit of my mojo as far as working in the studio was concerned. I kind of felt like I was on a bit of a production treadmill. There were so many production teams around. They were all trying to write the next Saturday single or the next Jerry Halliwell single or the, you know, or this or that. And, and everyone was doing the same thing with the same briefs. And I was finding that a struggle because I was finding that I, I thought there were other people that were better at it than I was. And I felt like um, I wasn't creating my best work because it wasn't, I wasn't necessarily writing the songs I wanted to write. So my other love had always been writing, um, but I hadn't really done it since I was at school. Um, so I, I, I suddenly thought, well, I've got a lot of stories I want to tell. I ended up going to a little uh, adult education course, writing course, to see, hone my skills and see if I could sort of do it, see if I was any good at putting together stories, tech, you know, prose. And it sort of went from there. I just started to love writing um, as much as I had music. But with the writing, I could sort of do what I wanted. I wasn't, there was no brief. There was no record company person standing over me saying, I want the song like this. I want it like we want it. It was just, I was writing what I wanted to write. Had you written or had you started writing what became Becoming Nancy before you had started doing any of the bio autobiographies? Yes, I'd written nearly all of Becoming Nancy before I started writing autobiographies. Um, I, the, one of the first things I wrote was a short story, which then became Becoming Nancy uh, uh, over time. Um, and again, it was, it was right place, right time. I'd written all these stories. And coming from the music business, my music manager, Hilary, introduced me to a book agent who had worked with Girls Aloud on their book. And she said, I'd love you to read, you know, Terry's stuff and 
Pat, the agent, was like, oh, God, I don't want to read, you know. Anyway, she read it and then she phoned me and said, I think you're a really good writer and I think I can get you a book deal. And she did. And that was Becoming Nancy. And uh, so just, was, just as, I mean, I know you said you wrote a short, short story there, but I mean, that's quite extraordinary to write a book and it pretty much, and get a deal straight away. I mean, do you, were you surprised? Were you shocked? Did you think it was that good? Um, well, I thought I was good at the time and I was very happy with it. I mean, now I'd pick holes in it to, for days, but at the time I had that beautiful um, serenity of not having any criticism. It was just for me. I didn't write it for a publisher. I didn't write it for a record company. It was just for me. So I thought it was exactly what I wanted it to be. It wasn't long enough. And I remember the publisher I met, a wonderful lady called Sarah Emsley, said to me, can you turn this from a novella into a novel? And I remember thinking, I said, how long is a novel? And she said, about 90,000 words. And I was like, in my head, I was thinking, I don't think I can do that. But my mouth was saying, yes, I can do that. Of course I can do that. So I went away and and, and did it and and just expanded the story um, uh, and, and found it a lot easier than I thought I would. And, you know, it went had to jump through all the hoops, you know, she had to take it to her boss and the panel. and But eventually, yeah, they offered me a, a, a book deal. Do you think it's a good example of write what you know? Yes. I wish... <laughs> I would listen to myself and do that again because I feel like I've kind of done the same with books that I have done with um, music in a lot of ways in that I have since written after my first novel, uh, which we'll come back to, I'm sure, but I've since written like 13 or 14 autobiographies for other people but never gone back and done my, I am working on it now, but I've never realised that that second novel because I have spent so much time thinking about what it should be rather than just writing what I know. We definitely will come back to Nancy. Um, I just, as you brought up the autobiographies, um, which for many incredible people, obviously including um, Danny that was, obvious that you would be the choice for that because you're a friend and also you're a great writer um and many many others um obviously most most recently um sarah harding what's your whether it's an autobiography i don't know if it's the same if it's an autobiography or or fiction but can you explain a bit about your writing process and i know that i've listened to a few authors who have a very similar writing process which is to do with a brief amount of time at a certain time of day and then a cutoff. Yeah, I tried all sorts of things over the years. And there are times when you're working on an autobiography and you've got a deadline and you've, you've, got, you've got to sit there for 12 hours and do it. There's nothing you can do about it. But generally, that's not the way to go. So my routine, the one that works for me is to do a smaller amount of hours in the morning and not... And this with any work, really. So, you know, maybe starts at 7.38 and work in bite-sized 50-minute chunks 
with little two minute breaks in between or a cup of tea break, but no internet, no phone, no social media, nothing, no plotting, no emails, just writing. And that way I get my, I get enough words done in a day to be able to say, right, anything else is a bonus. Anything else is gravy. As long as I get that meat and potatoes work done. Now that's, that's sometimes harder when you're creating something yourself. It's easier when you've, you're doing an autobiography and you're interpreting somebody else's uh, words. But when you're creating something yourself, things do tend to take a bit longer. But, but generally, that's my, my rule. And how, what's the magic number of, of words that makes you happy when you've achieved them a day, in, in a day? 2,000. 2,000 words. Mm-hmm. And does it, with an autobiography... Does it? Do you start from the? I'm sorry. With an autobiography, do you start from literally start from page one and go to the end, or do you do little bits of? I'll do a bit of the beginning and a bit of an end and fill the bit in the middle. Uh, I used to do it more um, chronologically, but it doesn't always work. I think when you're talking to and interviewing people for autobiographies and working with people, they might send you something they've written that, you know, is random, mid-story sort of thing, or you might end up talking to somebody about something and they'll go off topic and, and say talk about something that's, you know, not particularly in the middle of their life, but it's very pertinent and important. And I think it's always good to write those things when they're fresh in your mind. So you have their voice in your head and you get, you know, although it's all recorded and I'm listening back to it, you can remember the feeling they had when they were talking about it. Because it's really important that not to just put their words down, but to get them on the page. and, you know, with a lot of people, you know, they often write a lot of, write a lot themselves. You know, Banana Rama, for instance, they wrote an incredible amount of stuff. And, um, but, but it, uh, it just depends. But, but often when you're, when you're writing, it's good to get it fresh. Is it similar to either a songwriting situation or production situation where you might hear something or look at a bit of text and all of a sudden one bit will just pop out at you as if to say oh that's a good bit that's definitely going in yes Uh, or it might be something someone says during an interview that makes you laugh and you write it down and think yeah that's a that's something important but there's so much to fill in a book it's like a song's like three minutes and a book's like nine yeah thousand words so it's it it sort of gets it gets a bit more lost that you know an important moment gets a bit more lost in a book that it that it does a song i think what do you, what's your hope of the reader experience of any of the autobiographies? Are you right? You're presumably you're writing for the person that wrote it, but you're also very much writing for an audience. You're writing for the reader who doesn't know that person, even if you do. Yeah, obviously you want, the, the main thing is for it to be entertaining and riveting. And there, and I think that the, my job is to be a champion for the person I'm writing for, i.e. to get their side of the story across, to get what they want to say across. Because a lot of people have got amazing stories, but they're not necessarily writers, but that doesn't make their story any less important. So it's my job to tell 
help them tell that as best I can. Um, and there are times when I've worked with people where I thought that they, they, you know, maybe shouldn't be doing a book because they don't really want to tell those stories, the, the important stories. And it's not necessarily the scandalous, meaty stories. It's just, they just, you know, that, that certain people don't really want to really open up and they want to do a book, but they don't necessarily want to say anything. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think I've, I've worked in those situations before. And also, I suppose, most recently with something like Sarah Harding's book that it's written under difficult circumstances, but 95 to 96% of the book is about the most incredible fun life and, yeah. you know, incredible experiences and inevitably because of, you know, what's happened, there will be an interest in the end of it. But ultimately your job is to make sure that the whole thing reads um, and 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 gets across her entire personality and not just yes. that last bit. Well, the, the interesting thing about that book is a quarter of the way through, I realised that I was going to have to completely rethink how I was writing it because I was talking to Sarah she was she's very ill and you know she, but she's always in good spirits and we had great chats on the phone and or on on FaceTime but when i was talking to her we talked chatted so much about what was going on with her her sort of struggles of day to day stuff you know hospital visits the treatment she was on, how that was affecting her, that I realised that that was as much part of the story and I didn't want to just shove it all at the end in one chapter. So the, the her whole life story is really told from her as she is now. So it talks about what she's going through in tandem mm. with stories from her life. So you get both the then and now, which I think makes it even more poignant in a lot of ways and kind of quite heartbreaking because you know one minute she's talking about this amazing moment of winning a Brit award or whatever and then she is referring to a particularly horrible thing that happened to her when she's in treatment and they're right there next to one another um which I think is the a thing that sort of uh, says to me anyway that you really need to embrace and enjoy everything while it's happening. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, and also you there's a responsibility there because as with so many of the subjects of autobiographies, these are people that are your friends. Yeah, people I've worked with. I've, 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 I've done, you know, as I said, I've done Danny. I did Kimberly from Girls Aloud, Denise. I'm, Denise I'm working with now, Denise Van Outen, um, all, and, and Sarah, all people I've worked with in the past and been friends with. So there is a, there's definitely a, a pressure to, to make sure I get it right. But of course, you know, they're contributing to the book massively. You know, it's it's not my words, it's their words. I'm just helping them put it down. Hmm. Um, so I would hope that, you know, I would be saying what they want me to say. So if we go back, we touched on becoming Nancy briefly. Um, so 
just take me back to that moment. I mean, I know where I was when I found out because you came bursting through the door of a restaurant called Canteen and screamed at the top of your voice the news. But where were you when, do you remember when you found out that Jerry Mitchell, one of the most legendary Broadway producers of all time, was going to buy your book and turn it into a Broadway musical? Well, the first time I heard of the possibility, I was in a room with you, actually, and Denise Van Outen. Oh, for some girl I used to know, was it? We were working in a studio, yes, and I got a call from my agent saying a guy called Jerry Mitchell wants to buy the rights to Becoming Nancy. And, of course, I mentioned this in the room and Denise went nuts because obviously she'd been in Legally Blonde and knew all about Jerry Mitchell. Of course, I knew about Jerry Mitchell, but not as much as I do now. And uh, and then you're right. I think it took a while down the line. And the moment when, yeah, I came screaming into the restaurant, I suppose, was when it was a, was definite. Um, but it was a long process. I mean, you know, I, I also had a, a film company that wanted to... to, to, to to buy the rights, um, I, I, it was, it's crazy. You know, this, this, this. We're talking about moments here. This thing that I sat in my bedroom doing for myself, no book deal, nothing, just writing this story, giggling away at myself, thinking I was hilarious, and you know, um, and then cut to you know, eighteen months later, and I'm sitting in Soho House in LA with Hillary having a. Um, uh, meeting with uh, the son of uh, Norman Jewison, who directed Fiddler on the Roof and a million other films about the possibility of them buying the rights to turn Becoming Nancy into a movie. Um, they're, they're the sort of things that make your head spin, I think. But I had spoken to Jerry by that point and I loved him and thought he had integrity and um, and just got it. He just got the story I knew he understood it. I knew he understood me, and uh, and it, it was a no-brainer, really. At the end of the day, I mean, it, it's a very much a safe pair of hands, um, I think, because you've pretty much loved everything he's done as well. So I think you knew that it wasn't, you know, he was going to get it right, and it, and it is your baby. I mean, as much as you signed the rights away to a point, I mean, you initially were involved in the creative process as far as at least being around and it wasn't like there's my book do with it what you will I've been very lucky with the whole creative team uh, who have always kept me Jerry's always allowed me to be there in rehearsals in showcases workshops which is quite unusual really I think I think that you know the last thing I want is the writer poking their nose in the original writer poking their... but I think Jerry knew that I, I had, because I had an appreciation and knowledge of musical theatre, you know, I knew that there were things that would be, have to change and there would be characters that would be cut and the, the focus of the story would be much smaller. Um, and I understood all that. So I don't think he felt afraid of having me there, knowing that, you know, that, that I had that knowledge. And, and, and now, of course, I'm kind of actually working on, on the creative team of the show as well. So, uh, yeah, that's been quite a ride. Seeing, seeing the show for the first time, it's uh, to a packed house in Atlanta when we did our tryouts in 2019. It took five, six years to get to that point. 
but that was uh, one of the most amazing moments of my life for, for sure it was unbelievable well because you've as you said you it took coming back from a very serious illness to decide i'm going to do more things for me to then to decide i'm going to write a book that then gets published that then ends up on jerry's in fact there's a really interesting story about how it got to jerry isn't there well jerry he was over directing legally blonde i think in london or overseeing legally blonde in london and he was flying back to new york and thought oh i haven't got anything to read on the plane and i think he picked up a copy of gay times and um the lovely Darren, who was editor at Gay Times at the time, had done a big feature on Becoming Nancy, which Jerry read and then thought, well, that sounds interesting. Went to a store, picked it up, read it on the plane on the way home. By the time he got off the plane, he got off the plane, came out of the airport, phoned his lawyer and says, I've just read a book, I want to buy the rights. Find me the person that, like, where I can buy the rights to this book. It was that, that was the story. And of course, it had that extra tiny, tiny little bonus of having a little bit of Minogue magic on the front cover as well. Of course. <laughs> a nice little quote from, from Kylie. From Kylie, yeah. Which um, I'm sure made a lot of people pick it up because she doesn't endorse much. No, well, you know, the thing is about the girls with Kylie and her, they've always been so supportive. I mean, I sent Kylie asked me to send my manuscript to her before I'd even the book had even come out because she was interested and and Danny was there at my little book launch in uh, the Mayfair Hotel you know Dan turned up and was there and had photographs taken and you know those girls are amazing at that sort of thing they're very loyal and they're very supportive in fact I don't even think I've had a career without Danny to be honest you know having done everything with her from X Factor to books to records to stage stuff it's just you know it's a uh, she, she's been one of the most important people in my career. Definitely. And, of course, you say there, I mean, still the thing that you say that you feel unqualified to do, the vocal coach stuff, I mean, you've done a load of it. You did it on X Factor. You've done it on The Voice Kids. You know, you do. Yeah. You are, as much as you're not sure why, you are very good at it because people keep asking you to do it. So yeah, there must I be something I'm there. <laughs> I, yeah, and I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of pleasant enough. I don't scream and shout at people, and I, I, I get the job done. There's been a couple of times when I've kind of dropped the ball, and I've, I know about it, but not that often. I just think, I just think you have to. Um, I think the, the most important thing for me is guts and instinct. That's the only way I can do things, and. And I do think, I don't know whether you're the same, that when, you, when you're when you not listening to your gut and your instinct is where things go tits up, really. Is that something, you know, if you were to, if someone's listening to this going, you know, I'd love that career, and they were sort of 18, 19, 20 years old, you know, what's what, what are the things, some things you've learned? What are the things? And I know today is very different to when, even though you're obviously still only 37, it's uh, <laughs> it's very different now because of social media and all the pressures of all that kind of stuff. But I mean, I think stick stick to your gut and stick to your instinct is, is is good advice. Is there anything else you'd say, especially as someone that has seen a lot of younger performers come up through talent shows that you've been around? 
what what what's kind of some sage advice to give people coming up in the industry well i think if you come up through the talent show thing it, it's very difficult to to some it happens sometimes but to be true to yourself because you're you're always going to be molded in a certain way um but i think that yeah i i think the thing to to do is to is to not listen to the outside voices that that's my main i think that's been the the bane of my life is the 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 critics in your head and sorry the critics in your head of of my head have been the my worst enemy i think you've got to trust yourself and you know when you're sitting there thinking Oh, what does someone think about this or what's that person going to think about this or what nobody's thinking about you only you're thinking about you that's the truth of it and you've just got to put down and get down what you think is good and trust that and not listen to the critical voices that are on your shoulders and that that's my biggest piece of advice for anyone that's fine not so much so i guess kind of to to finish off Putting all that together, the the thing you are most looking forward to is being back in that rehearsal room, rehearsing your musical, Becoming Nancy, when you're allowed to, and finishing it. Yeah, we we came, we we were actually lockdown happened. Broadway shut down while we we're in the middle of a workshop, and we all had to fly, and I had to fly home, and um, it was a bit of a shock to everyone. So. Um, that is, yeah, I'm looking forward to that moving forward, really, and coming to fruition. And, you've been and I'm also looking forward to finishing my book, my novel. <laughs> <laughs> Difficult second novel. Yes. Thing to have. Definitely. Well, thank you very much for chatting to me today. And uh, thank you. enjoy the rest of uh, what is currently a sunny day. Yes. And uh, look forward to you getting back into, uh, into rehearsals for Nancy, where yeah. you belong. Thanks, Steve. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye.